MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official Challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. On this episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly, barely a year removed from a car crash that could have killed him, Tiger Woods surprised a lot of people by playing in the Masters. SI senior writer Stephanie Epstein joins us for her report on how Woods looked at Augusta. But first, the NBA playoffs are here and we have our Eastern and Western Conference playoff previews with SI senior writers Chris Mannix and Howard Beck. It's Wednesday, April 13th. I'm your host, John Gonzalez. From Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio, this is Sports Illustrated Weekly. You can read them on SI.com and listen to them on the Crossover Podcast. SI senior NBA writers Chris Mannix and Howard Beck are here. Guys, welcome to Sports Illustrated Weekly. Thank you. Good to be back. Good to be on. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I'm excited about this. The playoffs are upon us, and we're going to get into all the conference matchups. We're going to start in the East and get to the West. Before we do that, I want to pull back just a little bit because the odds makers have the Suns as the favorites to win it all, followed by the Bucks. But not by a lot, right? I mean, there's eight teams that are 12 to 1 or better to win it all. And you guys tell me, but I, I love this. It feels like one of the most wide-open playoffs we've had in a long time. Yeah, uh, Adam Silver's dream in his early years as commissioner, and maybe this was David Stern's dream to a degree, but 
he has craved NFL style parody. Mm-hmm. We all understand that stars and big markets often drive ratings in the finals, but how many conference playoffs have we seen over the last decade where the outcome was all but predetermined, whether it was a LeBron team getting to the finals, yeah. a Golden State super team winning a championship. That might lead to end-of-the-road high ratings, but the conference playoffs were at times unwatchable and almost meaningless because you knew who was going to get there. Last year, we had an excellent postseason. This year, I think we're headed towards an excellent and unpredictable postseason where as many as eight teams from either conference could find their way into a finals matchup. So, you know, this is what the NBA wants. Even if you see a ratings dip in a conference finals, the NBA finals, I think the NBA is okay with it if what they get are competitive matchups throughout these playoffs. I agree with most of that. I mean, listen, just for the record, though, David Stern did what say that his ideal finals matchup was the Lakers versus the Lakers. This was back in the Shaq (laughs) and Kobe era when uh, that would have just been the highest rating in the history of ratings. The the NBA is star-driven. We all know that. The NBA is often super team and dynasty-driven. We all know that. And we know that having LeBron in the finals or having the Steph Curry Warriors in the finals or even better, LeBron versus the Steph Curry Warriors in the finals, that's great for ratings. However, I think in Adam Silver's view, to Chris's point, overall, you have the potential erosion, if you have that go on too long, in the smaller markets. You have an erosion of belief. You have an erosion of any appearance of competitive balance. So the fact that we had Suns versus Bucks last season, and especially because the Suns were the team we could not see coming, the Bucks coming from one of the smaller markets, that's good for the league too, because as much as this is a star-driven league and often a big market-driven league, What the NBA really needs for good health across the league is for all 30 franchises to have some sense of belief and for their fans to have some sense of belief and for just us to not see every year just an exodus of superstars from smaller markets to larger markets as we've so often seen. And this postseason, again, provides, I think, some of that hope because, yes, the Suns are favored in the West and had the best regular season by far, but the Grizzlies have a shot. The Warriors, if they get healthy, have a shot. I don't think anybody else does. I think it's kind of a three-team race. And in the East, could be the Bucs, could be the Celtics, could be the Sixers. Maybe it's the Heat. It is kind of wide open, and I think the suspense is good for all of us. Yeah, I've loved it. And and you mentioned the Eastern Conference where, honestly, if you put five teams in a hat and picked one out at random and said, hey, that team won the Eastern Conference, I would believe you because the entire season was such a tight race. And I thought it was one of the most enjoyable Eastern Conference runs in a while. So we'll start there. You mentioned the Heat, Howard, almost kind of in passing there. They got the number one seed, six and four over their last 10. They win the conference by two games. How do we feel about the Heat as the top seed? Listen, I I feel like, obviously, they earned that spot. You know, my bad for mentioning them last in that group. It's not that they're an afterthought. I want to be clear. It's just that the Heat are not the typical favorite in a conference that we're used to seeing. We are used to seeing in the NBA... It's a star-driven league. We're used to seeing super teams. We're used to seeing teams where you have one transcendent guy, sometimes a couple of transcendent guys, and then a bunch of great players around them. What the Heat have is just a bunch of great players. Mm. Jimmy Butler's great, but Jimmy Butler is not in any any MVP conversations and probably won't, won't ever be. That's fine. He's a phenomenal player. I would love to have him, but he's not your typical franchise star. Bam Adebayo is an incredible defensive presence and an evolving offensive player as well. 
an all-star. He'd be All-NBA if he hadn't missed a bunch of games. Kyle Lowry has won a championship and been a multiple-time All-Star. But this is the prototypical ensemble cast. And the reason that they become sort of an afterthought, perhaps, is they don't have Giannis, but the Bucs do. They don't have a Jason Tatum, but the Celtics do. They don't have an Embiid and Simmons. Or Embiid and Simmons. I'm never going to get out of that. Embiid and Harden. (laughs) I will be saying Embiid and Simmons for the rest of time. They do not have an Embiid and Harden as the Sixers do. They don't even have a Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving as the seventh or eighth seeded Nets might if they make it out of the plan. So that's why the Heat feel like a, a little bit of an unconventional contender here. Can they make it? Sure. But if the old kind of axiom applies that the team with the best player generally wins a series, then the Heat may have some troubles. We go to the number two seed in the Eastern Conference, the Boston Celtics, who were super slow to start the season. And then January hit and they flipped the switch and they really came on. So what changed for them? And then how do you evaluate them at this point in the season? You know, it's not a question. Well, it is sort of what's changed, but I mean, I'm pretty close to the Celtics. I live in Boston. I do a lot of work for the TV network out there. So I've watched almost all of their games. And the first two months of the season, Ime Udoka spent those months basically trying to break the Celtics of all their bad habits. Everything they'd picked up over the last couple of years, the atrophy that they've they had over the last year or so, Ime was trying to break them all. And he did it by publicly scolding them. Like he went after those players after virtually every game. And I remember watching that team play at Minnesota in late December and they didn't play the Timberwolves. They played like the G League version of the Timberwolves because there was no Towns, no Russell, no Anthony Edwards. And they lost that game. And I'm watching that game going, this team is done. They're toast. But in early January, everything that Ime Udoka was trying to instill in them seemed to click. The switching defense, which they didn't play under Brad Stevens, started to work. Jalen Brown, who had missed time with injuries and with COVID, got back on the floor and got healthy. Marcus Smart continued to grow into his role as a primary playmaker. I've been wrong about a lot of things covering the NBA for the last couple of decades, but I don't think I've ever been more wrong in my take that Marcus Smart could not be a lead playmaker on a high-level team. He proved me dead wrong all season long. He was a much better playmaking lead guard than I thought he was going to be. So you combine that with a roster that with Rob Williams could switch everything. Like their defensive versatility was better than any team in the league. You put all those things together and from January on, they have been one of the best teams in basketball for those reasons. All right, let's move on to the uh, the two series that we know for sure are going to happen. We've got the three seed and the defending champion Milwaukee Bucks against the six seed, the Chicago Bulls. Started out great for the Bulls the beginning of the season. Then injuries fouled them a little bit. They fell off. Bulls fans recently booed them, and Zach Levine had said that they were right to boo them. It's a little tough here. Bucks are the heavy favorites. I kind of want to reverse engineer this one. What has to happen for the Bulls to advance? I just don't see it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Um, let's go back to best player in the series is going to win it most of the time, and that's Giannis. Yeah, for sure. Plus, you know, look, Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday, perennially underrated second and third stars here. Great defenders, capable playmakers themselves. And this is a Bucks team that once they got Brooke Lopez back a few weeks ago, they're whole. The group that won the championship is 98% there again. And there's no reason to believe that the Bucs, despite their record, I mean, we can't get caught up in a, in a defending champion having their record recede a little bit the next year. That's common. The Bucs 
are, I believe, still the class of the Eastern Conference until we're proven otherwise. So Bucks versus Bulls, especially this version of the Bulls, who have, have regressed quite a bit over the course of the season. And listen, like they lost Caruso. They lost Lonzo Ball. They got Caruso yep. back. They're not getting Ball back. DeMar DeRozan and, and Zach Levine are a really nice one-two punch. Throw Vooch in there. And you've got a, a nice balanced offense to an extent, but none of it that can compare with the high percentage, high efficiency scoring of Giannis Antetokounmpo. So I just don't see that the Bulls have much of a shot here. I don't think this is going to be a very long series. Yeah, I don't uh, I don't see it either. I mean, weirdly, <laughs> a Bulls win might constitute the biggest upset in the first round in the Eastern Conference just based on the team that they're playing. And look, you can make a weird case that a healthy Cavs team could give the Heat some trouble. You can certainly make the case that Durant and Kyrie can win a first-round series against Boston. I don't see the case for Chicago at this point. I mean, what made them really good to start the season was that their defense was so surprisingly good. They finished the season ranked 22nd in defensive efficiency. Now, that has a lot to do with the injuries, specifically Lonzo Ball. You lose your point-of-attack defender, your point guard defender. Mm -hmm. That's going to cost you something big. So without Lonzo, the team they have right now going up against Milwaukee, which has just been... They've been waiting for this, and they wanted this matchup. They threw away the last game of the season because they wanted this matchup. I don't see the path to victory for Chicago with the group they currently have. Yeah, I think that we're uh, pretty much all on the Bucs, and it would be a surprise if it didn't shake out that way. We get to the last series in the Eastern Conference, which is the complete opposite coin flip for me, four-seed Philadelphia 76ers versus the five-seed the Toronto Raptors. I still have PTSD from the last time they met in the playoffs. Uh, outside of Fred Van Fleet and Pascal Siakam, they don't have a lot of star power. They're just a professional team. Nick Nurse is obviously a great coach. I don't know what to make of this series. You guys tell me. Uh, I'd like to know what I make of it, but fingers crossed on that. Can I just go first here, Howard? Only because, like, I don't mean to get too hyperbolic. Yes, you do. But, like, yeah. <laughs> this is one of the most important playoff series in the history of the 76ers franchise. Like, they went all in on James Harden. They gave up their best available pieces on the roster, or at least a few of them, with Simmons, Seth Curry, and Andre Drummond, who I think they'd want back right now. And they gave up draft consideration to get him. If they go out in the first round, and suddenly the Sixers and their ownership group are presented with the possibility of having to pay James Harden more than a quarter of a billion dollars over the next five years. That's not a position that I would want to be in. This has to go well for Philadelphia. They have to get out of this first round and at least get into a second round matchup with Miami to validate what this roster looked like. And I don't, it's going to be a challenge. Like we know now that Matisse Thybul is not going to be eligible for the two games in Toronto. That mm -hmm. takes away the Sixers' best perimeter defender from that team against a team with a lot of good perimeter players, from Pascal yep. Siakam to Fred Van Vliet to others on that roster. Throw Scotty Barnes into that mix on good perimeter talent as well. James Harden, let's call it mixed results over the first month or so with this team. This is going to be a tough series. You're going up against a team that will switch everything on the perimeter, has great versatility defensively. No, they don't have somebody that can stand in front of Embiid and control him in the post. But if Embiid goes for like 45, where's the other production coming from? The Raptors might be okay with that to have Embiid go off as long as nobody else does in that series. This is a fascinating matchup. And again, Howard, like 
one of the most important ones I can remember in the history of the franchise because Embiid's in his prime and you need to prove that James Harden is worth the investment to play alongside him for the next five years. Yeah, and and Harden, as we know, doesn't exactly have the most stellar postseason record overall. There's a lot on him too. Like his, his reputation as Embiid's running mate there's a lot riding on that as well. And there's a lot riding on this for Daryl Morey, who of course made the trade for Harden, reuniting with him after all their years together in Houston. I agree. A lot at stake there. Not necessarily hyperbolic, Chris. And on top of that, by the way, the Raptors can win this. Yeah. The Raptors absolutely can win this. The Raptors have been one of the best teams in the NBA over the last couple of months and certainly since the All-Star break. And just, you know, take a look since the All-Star break. The Raptors have been a top five defense since the All-Star break. The Sixers, 12th best. Now, you you go to the offensive rating, and it, and it reverses rather quickly. The Sixers have much more potency in the offense because of Joel Embiid. The Raptors don't have an answer there, but the Raptors do have this ultra-versatile team of all these long, rangy guys who can all defend every position, who can handle, pass, score. They're weirdly constructed. And weird is, is a compliment in this case. The Raptors are just really unique. They're tough for teams to deal with because they don't attack from any single point. And you throw in, as Chris mentioned, the Tybal ineligibility for all the games in Toronto, games three and four and a potential game six. They don't have a lot of depth to begin with, the Sixers. That could hurt them. So I, like, I don't even think it would necessarily be a massive upset if the Raptors won. It would be massive consequences potentially, but it's it, there's only three wins difference between them. And much less than that if you consider just the last couple months of the season when the Raptors finally got going. I don't want to belabor this point, Howard, but like, belabor <laughs> what away. do you do? Like, what do you do if you're Philadelphia and you lose that series? Like, what do you do? I mean, I'm asking. I'm actually asking this. Like, if you're the Sixers, what do you do if you lose that series? The easy answer there is you jettison the coach, right? I mean, the, it seems to me, and even though it, I wouldn't put it on Doc, I mean, Doc has got the roster that he has, but I would anticipate that if they don't get out of the first round, that Doc is almost certainly gone. I want to compliment the two of you, though, because it never rains here in Los Angeles, so I appreciate you guys hovering a storm cloud over my Philadelphia fandom. That's been really <laughs> enjoyable. Thank you. Um, real quick, actually, now that we mentioned the coaching component, yay or nay on both of these coaches being with their current teams next season? Nick Nurse is absolutely still with the Raptors next season. I know there's the rumors of the Lakers wanting to pursue him, but look, he's under contract and the Raptors would have to want to let Nick Nurse walk away. I don't know why they would. And we have a precedent in this league. Probably the most recent one, unless I'm forgetting one, would be Doc Rivers leaving the Celtics for the Clippers several years ago. And the Clippers had to send a first round pick as compensation for the Celtics letting him out of his contract. Last I checked, the Lakers did not exactly have a lot of draft picks to spare, and they need them for other purposes, namely to fix their profoundly effed up roster. So you're not sending out a pick to go get Nick Nurse if you need it to either offload Westbrook or to just go get other veteran help around LeBron. So Nick Nurse will be with the Raptors. Doc, I don't know. You could make the case that even if they flame out in the first round, there would be reasons to keep him. But he did take that job before by a matter of days or weeks before Daryl Morey got there. So the potential for Daryl Morey to make his own hire, of course, is always there. I just don't know why, unless Nick Nurse really hates Toronto and like <laughs> wants to follow the Kawhi Leonard path to Los Angeles and live there, why would you go? You are part of the most yeah. functional organization, one of anyway, in basketball. You've got Masai Ujiri and Bobby Webster 
who know talent, like who are going to get you a new young guy to develop and play every single year. You've got a young roster right now that with maybe one more piece could be a championship contender. Why would you go to step into a situation in Los Angeles where possibly you have LeBron for one more year and you have a front office that is run by somebody? I'm not exactly sure who at this point, whether it's Rob (laughs) Palenka, Kurt Rambis, Jeannie Buss, Linda Rambis, Magic Johnson with input from the ESPN desk out in Connecticut. Like, I don't, it just doesn't track for me why Nick Nurse would want that job. So I say Nick Nurse stays. And for all the reasons Howard articulated, Doc is probably 50-50. They lose that series. I could see him going. I do think there's, I do think we should question why, like, front offices who put coaches in these positions get to fire these coaches like they're the problem. Like, we just saw that happen with the Lakers and Frank Vogel. Frank Vogel's not even in the top 10 of reasons the Lakers were this bad last season. And Doc, you can certainly question certain things that he does rotationally, but Doc didn't make the James Harden trade. You know, he had a roster that was playing well, and now here they are in a little bit of flux going into the playoffs. That's not necessarily on him. All right, so that was the Eastern Conference. We're going to go over to the Western Conference after a break and discuss those playoff teams. And we'll also discuss the Lakers, who are once again out of the postseason and are a total dumpster fire. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferrer, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and challenge all-star. And speaking of all-stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers, and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape, you can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, at the very least, as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, 
pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media, as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. All right, so we did the Eastern Conference. Now we'll move over to the Western Conference. And Howard, as you mentioned, the Phoenix Suns were this delightful surprise last season. This season, totally different. They're the number one seed for a reason because they were the best and most consistent team in the league. But then you have the number two seed, the Memphis Grizzlies, and they've been so much fun to watch. Ja has been a revelation. Jaron Jackson staying healthy has been huge for them. But in the same way that Phoenix surprised us last year, I don't think anybody had the Memphis Grizzlies making this kind of leap this season. No, nobody did. I don't think the Grizzlies had the Grizzlies making this kind of leap this yeah. season. And it's been spectacular. It, it, it is very much analogous to the Suns last year, except the Suns had had that group together for several years and just added Chris Paul who, you know, look, if you needed a linchpin to bring it all together, that's the guy you go and get. And lo and behold, it pulled everything together. It made everybody better than the sum of their parts. The Grizzlies didn't add anybody. They just let their young guys keep evolving. John Morant took a massive leap from star to superstar. And the Grizzlies made one of those rare leaps by a young team. No outside help. Didn't go get some veteran. Didn't go get the, you know, the point guard who brings it all together. Didn't go get LeBron. What? They just made this organic leap themselves. And to top it all off, John Moran, of course, missed like 24 games and they went 20 and four without him, which just showed how hard this team plays and how much great chemistry they have, even when their star is unavailable to them. Their defense is legit. Their offense is explosive in transition. But as Stan Van Gundy told me on the crossover pod recently, he's not that confident in them in the postseason because in the half court, they just don't have enough shooting, and John Morant is not a shooter himself. Defenses are going to key in. They're going to grind the game down, and it's going to be a little bit tougher. But we have reached that point where it's kind of underestimate the Grizz at your own peril. Yeah, they've been so fun to watch this season, as have the Phoenix Suns, Chris. I mean, they're the favorites to win not just the conference, but also the championship. And I, I think it's almost curious like that we've taken them, or at least I'll speak for myself, that I've almost taken them from granted that, you know, they go out there and they're winning most nights. And they've got a guy, Devin Booker, who averaged 27 points, five rebounds, and nearly five assists on the best team in the league. And the last 12 guys who did that on the number one team all won the MVP. And it's just kind of like, oh yeah, he's just good. Yeah, he's really skated under the radar. And I hate to use that phrase because- mm -hmm. Most guys don't even like every time I hear Nikola Jokic under the radar, I want to vomit. The guy won MVP last year. It's like, um, shout out to your guy, Stan Van Gundy Howard, who loves to kind of refer to that sometimes. Loves Nikola Jokic. But um, yes, he does. I mean, they're a complete team. They are. Like, they yeah. don't have any real weaknesses. I mean, they've got an elite perimeter defender in Bridges, they've got an elite backstop defensive center in DeAndre Ayton. Booker is great. Chris Paul is great. I guess if you're wondering anything about Phoenix, is does Chris Paul break down in the postseason, which has happened time after time in Chris's career, including last year when he had to miss a chunk of time with that hand injury. So like, that's the only thing I'd be worried about right now if I'm Phoenix. I look at them as being a prohibitive favorite against everybody, including Golden State, including Memphis. You just don't see any weaknesses on that team. And you throw in the fact that this will not be their 
their kind of maiden voyage in the playoffs. They're coming off a finals experience that taught them, I'm sure, lessons on getting there, that they're hungry to get back to that position and win a championship. You know, I, I think Vegas has got it right to make yeah. them the favorite, not just to win the conference, to win the whole thing. Let's run through the last two playoff series in the West real quick. You've got the Golden State Warriors as a three seed and the Nuggets as the six. The big three for the Golden State Warriors, Steph, Clay, and Draymond have played only 11 minutes together. And then, as you mentioned, Nikola Jokic, who nobody talks about. So what do we think for this series? <laughs> I think we're going to be talking a lot about Nikola Jokic because <laughs> he's pretty much the entire Nuggets offense at this stage. It's not that the Nuggets couldn't win this series. They certainly can. I don't expect them to, but there's like 15 different asterisks to place in this whole conversation, starting with where is Steph Curry? Is Steph going to play? At what point does he rejoin them? How close to 100% is he? And I'm more concerned with Steph's health than I am with whether or not he and Draymond and Clay have spent more than 11 minutes together this season. They obviously had many, many years together and a few championships together. They're fine. It's not like with the Nets where throwing Ben Simmons in at the last minute is like, whoa, wait, we don't know about the chemistry. The Warriors' chemistry will be fine. Health is the concern there, though. And as great as Jordan Poole has been this season, breakthrough year for him, was the substitute Clay for a while. Now he's the substitute Steph for the time being. I like what the Warriors have. I like their depth. I like their championship know-how because they've done it before. And I would give them all of that over the Nuggets. But if Steph doesn't play, it's a much steeper task, obviously. Nevertheless, I expect the Warriors to win this one. I think that Jokic, it's admirable how far he's carried this team without Jamal Murray, without Michael Porter Jr., but especially in the playoffs and against a really good defensive team in the Warriors. I think there's just a limit to how much you can do on your own. Yeah, I agree. The Steph variable matters. He hasn't played since middle of March. And we've seen with foot injuries, namely with a guy like Anthony Davis, like you can be healthy enough to play, but mm -hmm. not be 100% when you get out there. And you know that the Nuggets are going to make him move a lot in that series. And they'll test that foot early and often. So I'm, I'm very interested to see like, what Steph looks like in game one of that series. They don't have the bodies to throw at Jokic. He averaged 28 and 16 against them in the regular season, four games against Golden State. But nobody has the bodies for Jokic. I think even with Jokic going off, with a healthy Steph, they win. If he's not healthy... That's anybody's series right now. The Nuggets can absolutely beat Golden State. Last one in the Western Conference is also anybody's series. It's also the 4-5 matchup, Mavericks and the Jazz. I don't know what to make of this one. I mean, as we're recording this, the Dallas Mavericks are still waiting on an MRI on a strained calf for Luka. Woj initially reported that there was uh, optimism, that he had avoided serious injury. And then the Jazz have just had a really weird year. I wonder what happens if they don't get out of the first round. Do they end up blowing it up? There's been a lot of chatter about that. What do you guys make of this matchup? Well, I would say first, I'm glad that the Mavericks are not playing the Clippers for the third year in a row because I'd like to see Luka <laughs> have a chance to advance without having to go up against you know Paul George and Kawhi Leonard and players of that ilk. Look, the Mavericks have kind of mirrored what the Celtics did in the second half of the season in a lot of the same ways. Like they were, they looked somewhat dysfunctional in the first couple of months. Then early January. They picked it up. Luka kind of mirrors Jason Tatum with the rise he's had to reemerge as kind of a top five MVP guy. Their defense with the way they play and aggressively trap, that's going to be interesting to see how the Jazz with Donovan Mitchell approach that. And there's just, look, Howard knows this. I've been a huge fan of the Jazz for years. I've always kind of given them maybe more credit than they deserved. I believed in them 
more than others. But there's just a weird vibe around that team right now where we're just kind of questioning, you know, do they like each other? Is Quinn Snyder going to be there next year? To your point, John, is like this going to be a team that gets shredded? I mean, anytime you're a team run by Danny Ainge, there's always the possibility that he kind of Gordon Geckos you and just rips you down for yeah. spare parts and rebuilds it from scratch. So there's just a vibe around this team. And look, if you're playing Dallas, they're probably going to try to get you to play small. And that might make Gobert, who's had some struggles against smaller lineups, more ineffective in a series like that. So, you know, I like Dallas in that series uh, for that reason. It's Dallas for certain if Luka is at all close to healthy. If that calf strain proves serious, and again, as we record this, we don't know what the status of Luka's calf is, but if he's missing a game or two, that changes everything. I mean, I don't have a lot of faith in the Jazz as a whole. I don't see the Utah Jazz making a deep playoff run, period. And I don't see them beating the Mavericks in this series if Luka is healthy. But their chemistry is weird. I do think they're on the clock. I do think that an early flame out, whether in the first round or even in the second round, means major changes are coming. Whether that's trading Gobert, whether it's trading Mitchell, whether it's replacing Quinn Snyder, whatever it may be, Chris put it well. Danny Ainge is there for a reason. And Danny Ainge doesn't mess around and he doesn't, he's not going to wait. And besides that, even if they had never hired Ainge, it just felt like this thing had run its course. Yeah. And even people in Utah kind of feel that. Yeah, there's so much uncertainty for their team and for these playoffs. I'm really excited about the playoffs. We've run through all the teams that actually made the playoffs. We talked briefly about one specific team that did not, but I want to wrap this up with you guys on the Lakers and what a mess that situation is. They fired Frank Vogel. I guess they ended up telling him. Initially, they had neglected to tell him because somebody had said, hey, what do you think about this? And they said they haven't told me. Uh, but they have since then. And now a bunch of names have been bandied about. We mentioned Nick Nurse, possibly Quinn Snyder or Doc Rivers. But can a coach fix this team because they have limited cap space, no first rounder until 2027, very few assets. It feels like they got bigger problems than that. Look, I, I don't know if we can swear on this podcast, but dick move, dick move by the Lakers <laughs> to allow that report to get out or to leak it out that Vogel was done before he even sits down after the last game of the season. Like, what was that? Yeah. Kind of a fitting end to a dysfunctional year, though, for the Lakers. I, I don't... I don't know what the answer is with this team. There's no market for Russell Westbrook. Nobody's trading for him unless you attach either that 2027 or the 2029 first-round draft pick. And the Lakers have made it clear, at least before the trade deadline, that they weren't interested in doing that. LeBron's going to be age 38 next season, mm -hmm. and he's showing signs of wear. He's still elite. I mean, the guy averaged 30. That's unbelievable. But... He's showing signs of wear and tear. These ankle sprains and the nicks and bumps he's had over the years, that could be something that continues. And at some point, you're going to see him wear down. Anthony Davis still has yet to prove he can stay healthy for a full season. I mean, really, that bubble run was the best we saw out of Anthony Davis. I don't know what the solution is here. I don't. Yeah. Like, they're going to have to replace half their roster because of so many minimum contracts that they have. They've got to get more athletic. They've got to get younger. They've got to get longer. But those guys don't grow on trees. Like, you can't just sign them off the street. So I think with a healthy LeBron, healthy AD, they'll be better. Just, by the way, before you go, Howard, like, I am so over this narrative that if the Lakers were healthy, they'd be better. Like, Anthony Davis keeps pushing this. Like, they were 11-10 and 10 with mm -hmm. their top three guys. And I'm sorry, Kendrick Nunn is not Michael Jordan. Like, Kendrick Nunn coming back to play would not have been this bomb that would have healed the Lakers. I just don't see it happening. So they're going to have to do something... Something I don't expect, something really creative 
that's going to get this team back on a championship path. Chris, I'm glad you brought that up because Anthony Davis just said that he and LeBron are enough to win. Howard, are they? They are if you have the right supporting cast. We saw it a couple years ago. They won a championship. And then the Lakers dismantled it, and then they dismantled it again. The problem the Lakers have right now is not the coach. Whatever Frank Vogel's weaknesses may have been, perceived weaknesses, rotations, whatever, it's always about the roster in the NBA. And especially when if it's the same coach who coached you to elite defense his first couple of years and suddenly that defense fell off because you don't have the same players, maybe it's the players. Um, real quick, here are the most minutes played by Lakers this year. Russell Westbrook had the most minutes played. Okay, fine. Fading all-star, but still, he's Russell Westbrook. Second most minutes played, Malik Monk. Might start for some teams, probably a sixth man on most teams. LeBron James is next to minutes, missed a lot of games. Carmelo Anthony, fourth most minutes on the Lakers. Carmelo Anthony was a short minutes role player for the last four or five years. Fifth most minutes on the team. Taylor Horton Tucker, say no more. After him, Austin Reeves, Avery Bradley, then Anthony Davis, yeah. Stanley Johnson, picked up off the scrap heap midseason, Dwight Howard, Wayne Ellington, Kent Bazemore, Trevor Reza, DeAndre Jordan. Where is the supporting cast here? Which of these guys was Frank Vogel supposed to have played more or more prominently? Like, There's just no good combinations to be found here. This roster is a disaster. It's on the front office. The Westbrook trade was a disaster. The guys that they gave up in that trade would have all been very useful this season. Harrell and Kuzma and Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. They have botched this so badly. And the way out starts with finding a, a new home for Westbrook, which is a near impossibility with $47 million left on his contract for next season. And then even if you can find a new home for him, I don't know what you're, you're bringing back, you still have to replace most of the guys that I just named because that is not a functional roster. Very few of those guys would start on any good team's in the NBA. That's a problem. And the older that, that LeBron gets, the more you need a stronger supporting cast. The Lakers just don't have it. And last thought, I have not seen anything from this front office in the time that they've been there that indicates to me they have the creativity necessary to pull off this impossible task that we just described. Howard, hypothetically, if you could trade like Westbrook to Indiana and you get back like Buddy Heel, but you have to attach a first round pick, like that's like an onion article headline. Lakers get healed, but attach first round. Like, it's like, if you just done the healed deal last year, you might be in a different place right now. I just, like I said, I don't see the path to get back to a championship level for the Lakers. AD and LeBron by themselves is simply not enough. And by the way, I would love to see them pull it off because I never want to see a, a player of LeBron James's caliber saddled with a situation like this. He's too great. Whether you love him, hate him, or otherwise, you don't want to see an all-time legend who, by the way, is still playing at an MVP level when he's playing. I know it was only 56 games. I'm not saying he's in the MVP conversation, all that stuff. But the numbers he put up are MVP-type numbers. And if you can keep him healthy a little longer and get the right cast around him, LeBron James can still lead this team to the finals. There's no question. But as it stands right now, I just don't see how they get there. And I think they're going to have to get, this is how creative they need to get. Along with the Westbrook discussion, at some point they have to actually at least have the conversation internally. What would happen if we trade Anthony Davis? What is the market for him? What could we get back? Because he is their only tradable commodity who can bring back positive value. Westbrook cannot. Kendrick, Kendrick Nunn. Kendrick Nunn, I've heard, 
can bring back an all-star. <laughs> Kendrick Nunn, Taylor Horton Tucker in that future first are going to get them uh, Bradley Beal, apparently. It is uh, extremely grim for the Lakers. They've missed the playoffs seven times in the last nine years. They're basically turning into the Sacramento Kings of Southern California. Ooh. You guys, though, always excellent. Listen to them on the Crossover Podcast. Read them on SI.com. Chris and Howard, unlike the Lakers, you came through. Thanks for this. You got it. Thanks, Josh. After a break, we discuss Tiger's improbable return to the Masters. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And guess what? So are we. Just in case you forgot, I'm Tori Deal. I'm a six-time finalist and a Challenge champion. And I'm Anissa Ferreira, and I've been gracing your screens for the last two decades. I am a veteran challenger and Challenge All-Star. And speaking of All-Stars, All-Stars 4 is finally here. I'm going to be honest. I literally thought this day was never going to come. Well, the challenge gods have answered our prayers and we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, redemption seekers, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. Anyone can win, relationships matter, and only one all-star will claim the title of challenge champion. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith. When I'm not at my day job, first tape. You can find me in my studio hosting the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and politics. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions on those nauseating cowboy fans, the chaos in Washington, D.C., and trending topics on social media as well as my straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. And I occasionally give out love advice. Yes, it's true. If you want to know my true feelings about something, I'll give it to you straight. So, listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. We've got a huge moment here, folks. We've got a long-awaited return. Tiger Woods, his first shot. Which did. Which did a little bit. Here's what I worry about with Tiger, that reconstructed 
right leg. That's his back leg in which he gets all his thrust. You I live maybe five minutes from where Tiger Woods crashed his car a little over a year ago. And every time I drive by it, I think, how in God's name did he live through that crash? Tiger Woods remains in the hospital recovering from surgery following yesterday's devastating crash in California. The golf great, who only recently was getting over his fifth back operation, suffered significant injuries to his right leg. It's been 14 months since the wreck that could have claimed Tiger's life and badly damaged his leg. Remarkably, Woods recovered from his injuries and he surprised a lot of people by playing in the Masters. SI senior writer Stephanie Epstein was in Augusta all week reporting on Woods and a comeback that few of us anticipated happening so soon. Was there any conversation this week from him about how far he's come and how lucky he is to not only be able to play the Masters, but to be alive? Yeah, I think he was asked that like every five minutes. <laughs> And he kept saying, you know, the word that he would use is thankful, that he's so thankful that he has the opportunity to do this. He talked a little bit about how he was in a bed for basically three months after the accident. The question was just quality. It was life at all. And then it was quality of life for a long time. It was not playing competitive professional golf. And so it, it seems like it was only fairly recently that he realized. He said a, a month ago he wasn't sure he was going to be able to do this. For him, it was more about endurance and stamina because each individual shot he can hit and he can go for a casual walk. But to try to do five-hour rounds four times in a row is a lot for a regular person, a regular 46-year-old, let alone one with a fused back and a leg that probably has so much metal in it that he wouldn't be able to get through airport security. It's pretty astonishing, actually. When did you get the sense that he might actually pull this off? I think the week before people started to wonder because he went up there to play a practice round with his son, Charlie and Justin Thomas. Mm -hmm. And he sort of announced that he was doing that, I think to save people the trouble of tracking his private plane. And so people wondered like, is this, is he actually going to be able to do this? And he, he wouldn't say for sure until he gave a press conference on Tuesday, the Tuesday before the event started and said, as of this moment, I am planning to play. He had played, either one or two nine-hole practice rounds by then. He was definitely getting out there, but Augusta's very hilly, and it was mm -hmm. a pretty cold week, so there was some question as to whether his body was going to hold up. Then he showed up on Thursday, and he, and he did it. He played four days. You mentioned that he played with his son Charlie at the PNC, and he had done some practice rounds, but as you outlined, you're so right. It's a long way from being able to play four rounds over the course of four days, and specifically that course is difficult to walk. I've been to Augusta. You were there all week. Explain to listeners who haven't been there how physically taxing that particular course is. Yeah, it's one of the hardest courses to walk, I think, on tour. John Rahm, who played with him on Sunday, said that he thinks it's the hardest one of all and that almost literally any other course will be easier for him to walk. Augusta, it looks hilly enough on TV, but it is everyone who arrives there is like, wow, I cannot yeah. believe how steep this is. It's the sort of the first impression. It's it's a really tough, it's a tough walk for reporters and fans. So imagine doing that and also playing golf. It's pretty hard to do anyway. And so Ron was saying and Tiger was saying and a lot of people were saying that it should get easier for him playing other courses as he gains strength. But I mean, it's never going to be easy, but this is probably the hardest 
one he will face. Plus, the temperatures were low. Mm-hmm. That's hard for him. This was a rough week. I think everything after this should be a little bit easier. Yeah, so did he talk much about that in between various rounds? I mean, the we- the weather, as you mentioned, didn't exactly cooperate. He's got the back issues. He's had five surgeries, so I'm imagining that the cold weather probably didn't help him a ton on that. Was he icing a lot in between? What was the recovery like for him? Yeah, he didn't want to get too specific, but he said a lot of ice was in his future after each round. The goal is to get the swelling uh, in his right leg down. And he wasn't specific about what that entails, but it seems like there's a team of people working on him. He's in the the truck that they use as a training room for the tour. There's a lot of work to be done in between rounds. He said that he goes out and breaks his body every day, and then he goes home every day and his team fixes it for him. It really is a remarkable feat because I know that a lot of the time we don't think about golf being physical, but for him... In this instance, at that course, it very much is. And he, you know, he guts it out. It's a mind over matter kind of thing. And we saw him limping. And it reminded me and a lot of people, I'm sure, but the 2008 US Open that where he he finished on a broken leg. But this is 14 years later, Stephanie, and five back surgeries later, and he's 46. And plus you have the car crash. I mean, this is a totally different thing in terms of that mental component he needed to get out there and finish, no? Yeah, I think that... People forget because the car crash was so dramatic that it was already really hard for him to do this stuff because of the back. Yeah. His back is fused. He's had to change his his swing basically to accommodate the fact that his back doesn't work the way it's supposed to. You could sort of see putting. He looked like he was struggling to bending over. Even without the leg injury, this was a challenging thing for him to do. So add that to the fact that he can't really walk. It's pretty remarkable what he was able to do this week. And to be in it, I mean, I was at a bar on Saturday in Georgia. I was there for a wedding in Savannah, so not far from Augusta. And I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who is very into golf. And he said, you know, Tiger's a couple strokes back. Tiger's in it, right? And so like, we started to discuss what it's like and how it feels different when Tiger is in a tournament and he's in the mix. What was the conversation like among the reporters and, and people who were there watching the Masters? Did it feel like people believe that he could maybe pull it off? Yeah, it's just, it's like two different sports. There's like golf and then there's Tiger Woods. Uh, So at SI, we had somebody on Tiger every single day. We had somebody writing basically the leader of the tournament and somebody writing Tiger Woods, no matter what. Because, I mean, I think it was Will Zalatoris said, people like to say he moves the needle. He is the needle. Tiger Woods is the one that everyone cares about. I wrote one of the days, I think it was Friday, about what it was like to follow the leaders. You could go anywhere on the course, basically, as long as you didn't want to watch Tiger. There was room anywhere. You could see you could have... It was a great day to watch golf as long as you wanted to watch somebody other than Tiger Woods. His galleries are huge. Mm-hmm. He's the one that everyone cares about. It was so cool to be there in 19 when he, when he won. And then, as he said, he won in 19. He played in 20 where there were no fans. Mm-hmm. He was out in 21. So this is the first time he's had fans since he won. I think it was pretty emotional for him to be back and to be part of that. And so even though by the beginning of Saturday, it was pretty clear that he was not actually going to make much noise in the tournament, the fans were still almost as into it. And he was pretty gracious about it. I mean, took his hat off a bunch of times. He was Mm -hmm. acknowledging fans, which is not something he did at all when he was younger and more dominant. And so I think there was maybe not a valedictory sense to it, but definitely he sort of stopped and soaked it in. And I think fans soaked it in as well. The crowd and the circus around 
Tiger is something I've always been interested in. I covered the Masters in 2010 after his stint in sex rehab, and that was obviously a very different vibe. But this one, especially post-crash, especially after not having fans previously the last time he had played, it felt like when you're talking about how he was acknowledging the crowd and he was tipping his cap, it really did feel like he was finally easing up on himself a little bit because Tiger at the Masters is always a thing, right? And he's a this supreme competitor, but he seemed like he was really enjoying the moment and enjoying just being out there. Yeah, he said when he got there, you know, I don't enter tournaments unless I think I can win. I think I can win this one. And that's part of what I thought was so impressive about this is that maybe on the first day, it's like, okay, I just had to get here. And then on the second day, you know, by then he's only one over. He's He was like four or five strokes back. Maybe it's not impossible. He could still argue to himself that he's in the mix. But he four-putted, I think, the fifth hole on Saturday. And at that by that point, it was totally over. There was no chance he was going to do anything. So that's like seven and a half hours left of more than that, I guess, of just non-competitive golf, of just going out there and doing it, and you know you can't win. That I thought was really impressive, the level of focus and the level of pain that he was in to endure all that for the moment of being back is over, the moment of having a chance is over. You're just slogging through because you like to do this. That I thought was pretty cool to see. Will he continue slogging moving forward? I know that he said that he wants to play St. Andrews. It's his favorite course. But what else should we maybe expect or hope to expect from Tiger? I think he'll try to do a couple of majors a year. Southern Hills would seem like in some ways a good fit for him, but it's in five weeks and that might be kind of a tight turnaround. The U.S. Open, I think, is going to be fairly punishing, so he may want to skip that, certainly St. Andrews, but I don't think we'll see him play anything other than the majors moving forward. He said only the very big events. And it's it's really hard. I mean, it took a lot to get him here, and he's going to have to see now. He's not going to know for a couple of days what this did to him. So he said basically he was going to start preparing today, Monday, for possibly trying to go to Southern Hills. That's in, Again, that's in five weeks. He gets no, there's no recovery time. You have to start again and try to get there. Uh, so I don't think even he knows exactly what this life is going to look like. I find it shocking that he was able to get out there and it was cool just to see him out there. And it was great to read all of your stuff from Augusta. You can read her on SI.com. I think she has a transporter because she's everywhere all the time covering everything, but we appreciate her making time for us here at Sports Illustrated Weekly. Stephanie Epstein, thanks for this. Thanks for having me. Sports Illustrated Weekly is a production of Sports Illustrated and iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. And for more of Sports Illustrated's best stories and podcasts, visit SI.com. This episode of Sports Illustrated Weekly was produced by Cooper McKim, Jessica Yarmoski, and Isaac Lee, who was also our sound engineer. Our senior producer is Dan Bloom. Our executive producers are Scott Brody and me, John Gonzalez. Our theme song is by Nolan Schneider. Thanks for listening, and if you've stuck around this long, we leave you with this. We've decided that this is just the Stephanie Epstein show now, so we'll just have you on every week to talk. I look forward to seeing that reflected in my compensation. MTV's official Challenge podcast is back for another season. And so are we. I'm Tori Deal. And I'm Anissa Ferreira. The wait is over, guys. All Stars 4 is 
finally here. And this season takes it to a whole new level. Old school legends, modern power players, and ex-lovers are all competing in Cape Town, South Africa for the prize of $300,000. And we're going to be right here along with you fans covering every episode on the podcast. Listen to MTV's official challenge podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What's up, everybody? This is Stephen A. Smith, host of the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at the very least as I bring you all new episodes that feature the biggest headlines in the world of sports, pop culture, business, and I answer your phone calls and respond to your tweets. You'll hear my unfiltered opinions and straight-shooter interviews with top celebrities and game changers. All that and more. So listen to the Stephen A. Smith Show podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Nikki Glaser Podcast. Her roast of Tom Brady stole the show. Now she's talking about it on the latest episode of the Nikki Glaser Podcast. I said, tell Tom Brady that I'm the Tom Brady of roasting. Lots of people roasted the goat, but only Nikki is still being talked about. Every time I refresh my DMs, it's 14 blue check marks of people I didn't even know who knew me are writing like paragraphs to me. Hear that in all episodes of the Nikki Glaser Podcast on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search the Nikki Glaser Podcast to start listening.